0: You guys can turn to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44, you can turn to the end of it. We'll actually be starting in verse 24. While you're turning there, I'm going to say something um, this morning that's going to sound to some of you a little bit uh, sacrilegious. I did not always want to be an Aggie. Now, I know, I know. Oh, we've got to clap! Yes, um, I have since seen the light. I'm actually grateful for my time at a and I am confident that it was God's perfect plan for my life to come to A&M, but it was not my plan for my life. I never intended to come to AM. It was my my fallback plan. I was always intended to go to Rice. Actually, uh, I felt like Rice was a a little more prestigious, maybe a little bit. Um, it was higher on the list of, of schools of engineering, and I knew a professor there. I'd worked in his lab. So I always planned on going to Rice. I set my heart on it from an early age, and I did everything that I could to make it happen. And, and for me, getting in wasn't really the, the hard part. The hard part was paying for it. Rice is crazy expensive. So um, I got in, and, and they offered me financial aid. That was great. That made up some of the, of the aid that I needed, but I still needed more money. I still couldn't afford it. So I went out, and I applied for every scholarship I could. Qualified for. I padded my resume. I joined every organization. I did everything I could to win scholarships, and it, and it paid off. It worked. I won a number of scholarships and financial aid plus scholarships. I could afford Rice. I was ecstatic when I added up the numbers. Couldn't believe it. So the day of orientation comes, and my parents and I go to, to Rice, and it's exciting. I'm, I'm on top of the world until we met with a financial aid counselor. And she opens my file and she sees that I have both financial aid and scholarships rice wouldn't allow that so on the spot she rescinds my financial aid and it's game over for me i couldn't afford it without the financial aid it's summer i can't do anything about it god had closed the door on rice i was crushed i was so disappointed with how my life had worked out i'd worked so hard i felt cheated i was so disappointed by the circumstances of my life now i'm guessing that every one of you here has felt the way i did Life is full of disappointments. We all face the pain of disappointment. We, we work hard, we try hard, but sometimes life just doesn't work out the way we hoped. Maybe a, a relationship falls apart. Maybe you don't get into the school that you had hoped for. Maybe you don't get the job you'd worked for. Maybe your business fails. Maybe marriage gets hard or your kids rebel. Maybe your health fails or a loved one passes away unexpectedly. Life is full of disappointments. We all know the pain of disappointment. So, this morning, as we go back into the book of Isaiah, what I want us to ask the book of Isaiah is this What does God have to say about the disappointments of our lives? When life gets tough, when it gets painful, when it lets us down, what does God have to say about that? What does He want us to know in the midst of our disappointment and disillusionment? What does He want to fix our minds upon? When life gets tough, when life falls down around us. Now that's exactly what had happened to Isaiah's audience. Remember from chapter 40 on, Isaiah is writing to a future audience. He is writing to the exiles who would live in Babylon 150 years after his time. He's writing to people who had lost everything. They had lost their nation, their homes, their possessions, their friends and families, their freedom. They had lost everything. They're people who lived with day-to-day disappointment. They were incredibly discouraged people. And so Isaiah wrote to them ahead of time words of encouragement, words of comfort. And in his prophetic words, we hear God's answer to our disappointments. I want you to look with me. We're going to start in chapter 44, verse 24. That's where I want to pick it up. 44, 24. "'Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb.' I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone... Causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says to Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, Be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my. Design. Desire. and he declares of Jerusalem she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings to open the doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden wealth of secret places, so that you may know that it is "'I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name.'" For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity... I am the Lord who does all these. Now the first thing I want you to notice about our passage this morning is the key word, most repeated word here, most significant word in the passage. It's a word of one letter, the word I. I. In 12 verses, you have I, in the NAS, 17 times. Now, if you add to that all the references to me, my, Lord, and God, that's another 17 occurrences. That's 34 references to God in 12 verses. The passage is all about God. In the midst of our disappointments, when life goes poorly for us, God doesn't want us to look at ourselves and he doesn't want us to look at our circumstances. He wants us to look at him. Ultimately, it's all about him in everything that happens in our lives, especially the hard things. We need to quit looking at ourselves and look to him. He wants us to fix our eyes on who he is and what he's doing. And in particular, when life gets difficult for us, when it doesn't go as we had hoped, God wants us to know three things about himself. He wants us to fix our minds on three truths about who he is and what he's doing. So let's jump right in. First thing that God wants us to know, when life disappoints us, when circumstances go poorly, is none of it caught him by surprise. When life goes badly for you, none of that is catching God by surprise. I don't know if you guys know, but the passage that we read this morning, uh, according to critical scholars, those who are uh, not evangelical in nature, they don't necessarily believe that this is the word of God. Almost all of them agree that this passage was not written by Isaiah. They, they decided, they believe that it must have written by someone hundreds of years after Isaiah's time. And, and they list off a number of reasons for it, but really it boils down to one word that you find at the end of chapter 44 and at the beginning of chapter 45. It's a name cyrus isaiah claims to name a new world ruler 150 years before he comes a guy named cyrus now it turns out 150 years after isaiah's time a real man named cyrus ascended the throne of the persian kingdom conquered every kingdom around him including babylon and built the biggest empire the world had ever seen cyrus the great one of the most famous figures in all of world history Isaiah predicts not just his existence, but calls him out by name long beforehand. But that's not the only thing that Isaiah predicts. If you look back at verses 1 through 3, Isaiah proclaims something very unusual, that this ruler, this Cyrus, would create his kingdom without much of a fight. That God himself would go before Cyrus and shatter the doors and cut the bars. That, that Cyrus would win his kingdom without having to do much battle. And that's actually what happened. When Cyrus went up against Babylon, there were a few battles in the countryside. But then the entire city of Babylon, before Cyrus, the most powerful city on earth, simply surrendered to him. 540 BC Cyrus and his generals walk into Babylon without a fight. God simply handed it to him. That was unprecedented. That was completely unexpected. Isaiah predicted it. But that's not the only thing Isaiah predicted. Look at the end of chapter 44. Through Isaiah, God says, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. What Isaiah is predicting here is that this guy named Cyrus, who is going to build the biggest empire on earth, is going to freely choose to give the Jews their freedom, to give the Jews a ticket home. They can go home and rebuild their capital city. Now that was completely unprecedented in the ancient world. The Jews were a rebellious nation. they had always rebelled against their Gentile overlords. Finally, they were crushed. Finally, they were exiled. And now Cyrus is going to willingly let them go home and rebuild their capital city. That's crazy. No one would do that. And yet, Ezra chapter 6, written a few hundred years later. We're told the decree of Cyrus, he says exactly this. He declares the Jews, you are free. You can go home. You can rebuild your capital city. You can rebuild your temple. And surprise of surprise, I'm going to pay for it. Cyrus himself opens the royal treasuries and pays for the Jews to rebuild. Nothing like that had ever been heard of. It was incredible. You add these prophecies together and they are a remarkably detailed, remarkably accurate projection or prediction of a future that no one saw coming. And so critical scholars look at the book of Isaiah and they conclude, Isaiah couldn't have written this. There's no way. Well, there is another explanation. It's Isaiah's own explanation. Isaiah claims that when he speaks, it's not his words, that it's actually A God speaking through him. A God who possesses complete and perfect foreknowledge of the future. Isaiah claims that the God that we worship knows the future in exhaustive detail. He knows everything that is going to come. He has always known everything that is going to come in perfect detail. Not just things about world history, but things about your life. He knows every day, every moment of your life in perfect detail. And he's always known it. That's what Isaiah is claiming. Actually, Isaiah and and God himself hinges God's existence on his foreknowledge. Look earlier in chapter 44 at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me who is like me let him proclaim and declare it yes let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place do not tremble and do not be afraid have I not long since announced it to you and declared it and you are my witnesses is there any God besides me or is there any other rock I know of none God is saying my existence hinges on my foreknowledge the proof that God is God. The proof that we are worshiping the one true God is the fact that he can declare ahead of time what's going to happen. Now, the good news for us is that God has a perfect track record in that throughout history. We see God predict the future and then the future comes true exactly as he said it would. Now, we've actually seen that multiple times as we've gone through the book of Isaiah. Think back, Isaiah chapter 7. Through Isaiah, God predicts that the nations of Syria and Israel are going to be wiped out by the Assyrians. That comes true just a few years later. Now, that's not a shocking prediction. You could have kind of seen that coming. Assyria was a huge power. But later in the book, chapter 37 and 38, through Isaiah, God predicts that this powerful kingdom of Assyria will be unable to conquer the little city of Jerusalem. Not only will they be unable to conquer it, but they'll be driven back to their own lands where their king, the emperor of the earth at that time, will be executed. Sure enough, a few years later, that happens. Sennacherib is killed by his own sons back in his capital city. Throughout the book of Isaiah, God predicts the future and his predictions prove true. That is God's proof that he is the true God of heaven and earth. He knows the future in complete detail. And what that means for us is that when things go poorly in your life, when circumstances do not go as you had hoped, none of that catches God by surprise. It, it may catch you by surprise, but it doesn't catch God by surprise. Actually, you, by definition, you cannot surprise someone who has exhaustive knowledge of the future. They, they already know everything that's coming. That's God. Nothing surprises him. When things go poorly for you, it may rock you back on your heels, but it doesn't rock God back on his heels. He is always known Everything that's coming. He has always known exactly how he's going to lead us through those difficult circumstances. He knows everything that's going to come in our lives. That's meant to be a great source of comfort for us, even in the midst of disappointments. That's the first thing that God wants us to know about him, is nothing that happens in our lives catches God by surprise. Second thing that God wants us to know in the midst of our disappointment is that none of this fell outside of his control. Nothing that happens in our lives comes outside or goes beyond God's control. And when we say that, what we're talking about is something called the sovereignty of God. Isaiah wants us to understand that God is sovereign. Here's a a simple definition of sovereignty. All things are under God's authority so that nothing happens without his direction or permission. Sovereignty means that nothing that happens in the history of this earth or in the history of your life is outside of the permissive or declarative will of God. He controls, he oversees everything in our life. Nothing is outside of his control. Sovereignty means that God has, first of all, the freedom to do everything he wants. By saying that God is free, what we mean is that there is nothing external to God that limits God. The only thing that limits what he does is himself, his nature. There's nothing outside of God, no person, no thing that can constrain what God does. He does everything just as he pleases. Look at chapter 43. 43 verse 13. 43, 13, here's what God says about himself. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it? When when God chooses to do something, there's no one who can undo it. There's no one who can resist his will. He is completely free. Nothing can constrain him. So sovereignty means that God is completely free. Second, it means that God is all powerful. God has power to accomplish all that he desires. Jeremiah thirty two, seventeen. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. The Bible declares that our God is omnipotent. The common title throughout scripture you'll see is Almighty. That means that God has all might. He has all power to accomplish everything he desires. So not only is he free, but he possesses the power to do anything he wants to do. So God's sovereignty means that he has freedom and he has power. And third, it means that he has the right to do whatever he pleases. He has the authority, the divine right, if you will, to do as he sees fit. Look back at chapter 45, chapter 45, starting in verse nine. This is what God says about his sovereignty. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making saying he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their host. Now, some of you recognize the familiarity of this passage with Romans chapter nine, really tough passage in the New Testament. God's point is that in the universe, he's the potter and we're the clay. He has the right to do with us whatever he desires. And what gives him that right? Well, verse 12, he's the creator. He made everything that exists. He formed all life. He gave us life and breath for that reason. We belong to him. He has the right to do as he pleases. God's sovereignty means he has the freedom, the power, and the right to do whatever he pleases. Nothing that happens in the universe falls outside of his sovereignty. He is sovereign over everything. Now, let me clarify something for you real quick. By sovereignty, I don't think the Bible means determinism. That's how some people define sovereignty. Determinism, that God determines everything in detail that will happen. Or in other words, that God causes all things. That's not the Bible's definition of sovereignty. For example, the Bible is clear. God does not cause evil. God doesn't rule the universe through determinism. He rules it through delegation. God, in his infinite sovereignty, and in his infinite power, he freely chose to create free moral beings. That's angels and Adam and Eve. And he invested those free moral agents with genuine responsibility. He delegated some of his authority to them. He gave them the free choice either to obey him or to disobey him. And because they chose to disobey, that's the cause of evil. God does not cause evil. Free moral agents choosing to rebel are the cause of evil. Now, some of you look at verse 7 when I say that. You're looking back at verse 7. You're thinking, okay, wait. It says, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. What is Isaiah saying here? Well, calamity here is not evil. Calamity is the results of evil. God's point is is that he has created a universe that follows both physical laws, like light and darkness, and moral laws, like well-being and calamity. God created a universe where if you obey him, the unavoidable consequence will be well-being overall. If you disobey, the unavoidable consequence will be calamity. That's Isaiah's point. God has created a universe with certain inescapable laws. Within that universe, he has populated it with free moral agents who can choose to obey or disobey. That is my answer in brief to the mysterious intersection of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That's like my two-minute answer. It's a pretty complex subject. If you'd like to talk more with me, you can. I had lots of conversations about this after the first service. We can talk afterwards. I know it's a complex thing. It's it's been a controversy in the church for hundreds of years, this whole sovereignty thing. The thing for us to remember is that uh, God did not reveal sovereignty to us to create controversy. The, The reason he revealed his sovereignty is actually to give us comfort. That's what his sovereignty is all about. It is meant to comfort us. When life does not go as we would wish, sovereignty is meant to remind us nothing in life happens by chance. There are no accidents in our life. Everything that happens is God at work. It all fits under God's control. The story of our lives is his story. All of human history is his story at work. He is guiding it all. He is directing it all. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by chance. He's sovereign over it all. That's meant to give us incredible comfort, incredible peace, even when things don't go well. One of the best examples of that, I know, uh, happened a little over a year ago, 2010, BCS National Championship. University of Texas played Alabama. Now, some of you who watch that, you, you know where I'm going with this. Uh, for one young man, this was the biggest game of his college career, Colt McCoy. He'd worked incredibly hard to get to that stage, put in incredible practices, incredible performance on the field to get to the national championship. That was the pinnacle of his college athletic career. Fifth snap that UT takes of the game. He's hit, pinches a nerve, and he can't feel the ball anymore. They take him out. He ends up being pulled out for the whole game. Talk about disappointment. I can't imagine the disappointment he must have felt after a whole season of working incredibly hard, delaying your draft to the NFL just to get a, champ- a shot at the championship. You get that chance and then you're hit and you're out. Massive disappointment. What I really remember about that game is not the game itself. It's a post-game interview. They're talking to Colt McCoy after the game, and it's amazing, the, the guy just seemed so at peace. Um, he was obviously sad that it had happened, but he was at peace, he, he was joyfully had nothing but praise for his teammates, nothing but praise for Alabama, who knocked him out of the game, nothing but good things to say about them. And then right in the middle of the interview, he said, I always give God the glory, I never question why things turn out the way they do, God is in control of my life. That's what gave him peace in the midst of what would probably feel like the greatest disappointment of his life up to that point. He knew that God was in control. That that this incredibly rare thing, a hit that that causes a a nerve to go numb, it was not by chance. It was not an accident. It was all part of God's sovereign will for his life. That gave him peace and joy even in the midst of disappointment. Now, McCoy may be a T-sip, but I would gladly stand with any guy who will say that on national TV. Let's stand up what he did. That's awesome. He had peace in the midst of disappointment because he understood nothing that happens in our lives falls outside of God's control. He's sovereign over it all. That's the second thing Isaiah wants us to understand. Third thing he wants us to know about God is in the midst of our disappointments, nothing that happens to us will be wasted as part of God's plan. If, if history is his story. God's story at work in the world. If he's the one who is directing human history. Then what's it all about? What is his plot? What is his master plan for human history and for our lives? Well according to Isaiah. God's plan for us and plan for the world. Boils down to two points. Point number one. God is raising up chosen servants. God's plan begins with raising up chosen servants. Now, if you've read through the book of Isaiah, you know the whole book is full of servants. Full of servants. Lots of different servants revealed in the book of Isaiah. The first one that comes to mind is Isaiah himself. The prophet is God's servant. He is called a servant. Actually, chapter 44. All prophets are the servants of God. He was commissioned as God's servant back in Isaiah chapter 6. We saw that when he saw God. He was called to be this prophet of God. Isaiah was God's servant. but he's not the only servant. In addition to Isaiah the entire nation of Israel is God's servant. Chapter 41 verse 8. God says but you Israel my servant. Jacob whom I have chosen. Descendant of Abraham my friend. This is actually what makes Israel special. Out of all the people on earth, all of, the, all of the ethnic groups on earth, the Jews are special because God chose them as a nation. No other nation can say that. A whole nation, God chose to be his servants. He did it long ago in the time of Abraham. He chose that for all time they would be his servants. And, and notice, they're his servants in, in chapter 41. That's after the exile, even after they had sinned big time. Rebelled against God, faced discipline for their sin, still God says, you are my servants. The calling of God is irrevocable. When he has called them to be his servants, when he calls a person to be his servant, there's nothing that can ever happen that will revoke that call. The nation of Israel are the servants of God, even after the exile. That's surprising, but actually the most surprising servant in the book of Isaiah is Cyrus. Cyrus was a pagan king. We look at the historical record. He worshipped other gods. His chief god was, was not the god of the Bible. Cyrus was a pagan king whom God raised up to be his, his servant. Actually, the, the text calls Cyrus a shepherd of God. The anointed one of God. That's interesting. Who else is called anointed in scripture? Jesus. God uses the title of Cyrus. What's that t- what that is telling us is that in the sovereign plan of God, he's not limited by human faith. He can raise up anyone. He can raise up the godly. He can raise up the ungodly. Every person on the planet, God is free to raise up whoever he sees fit to accomplish his purposes. That's the sovereignty of God at work. So he raises up Cyrus to be this great deliverer who will accomplish the the second exodus of the Israelites out of Babylonian exile back to their homeland. But Cyrus is actually not the greatest servant of the book of Isaiah. You probably guessed it. Jesus is the greatest servant. Look at chapter 42. Chapter 42, verse 1. We're going to return to this theme multiple times in the weeks to come. Jesus is the greatest servant of the book of Isaiah and the entire Bible. Look at verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah declares that there will be this one, this this servant with a capital S, who will have God's spirit completely within him and who will bring perfect justice to the nations. Isaiah didn't know his name. We do. This is Jesus, the one who would accomplish perfect justice for God. Isaiah is going to speak about him later in chapter 53. We'll return to that passage. God, through Isaiah, says of this servant with a capital S, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. That's what the greatest servant of all would do. He would bear our iniquities. He would take our sins upon himself and die in our place so that we could be justified. That word means declared righteous in God's sight. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we celebrated in baptism this morning. That it is possible to be right with God, not by what we do, but by what the greatest servant of all, Jesus Christ, did. He took our sins upon himself. And died in our place as a substitute for our punishment. And then he rose from the dead. And now God offers to all of us the free gift of righteousness, forgiveness, eternal life with him. If we will simply believe. Simply believe that Jesus died in your place and rose from the dead. Jesus makes eternal life possible for us. He also makes it possible for us to be the servants of God. That's the last group. All believers are God's servants. God is at work in the lives of all believers, raising them up as his servants. Ultimately, Isaiah is a book written to us because we are also servants of God. We are also people whom God is working in to serve him on earth. Now, what does God want to do through us? So he's he's raised up all of these people, including all of us, to be his servants. What does he want to do through his servants? That's the second part of his plan. Who know him and make him known. God raises us up. So that we come to know him and make him known to the world. Look back at chapter 45. Chapter 45 verse 3. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places. So that you may know that it is I. The Lord the God of Israel who calls you by your name. He's speaking to Cyrus here. He says, Cyrus, the primary reason that I'm raising you up, the primary reason that I'm going to give you a kingdom over the whole world is so that you personally will know me. Now, we don't know from scripture or from the historical record exactly what came of Cyrus's faith. We believe he continued to worship other gods, but we do know that he came to respect, even revere the one true God. That's why Cyrus let the Jews go home, because he knew there was a God behind him who was no one to mess with. Cyrus came to revere the Lord God. God's biggest purpose in raising us up is so that we come to know him. Isaiah 43, 10. God says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed and there will be none after me. Here's where this hits home. Everything that God brings into your life, Whether good circumstances or bad circumstances, pleasant or painful, all of it is ultimately designed to lead you to the knowledge of God, to lead you to see God more clearly, to know him more fully. Ultimately, that's what God is doing in your life. Even in the things that disappoint you, he is trying to open your eyes so that you see him for who he is, so that you quit turning to other things and look completely at him the end of the day, that's what he wants in your life above all else, is that you grow to know him ever more fully. But he doesn't just want you to know him. Look back at chapter 45, starting in verse 5. He continues to speak of Cyrus. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. And there is no other. God raised up Cyrus. He raised up Isaiah. He raises up each one of us. So that not only can we come to know him. But so that we can make him known to the world. So that we can reveal to the world. That there is only one God. And he's the God of the Bible. That he is the creator. That he is almighty. That he is the king of kings and lord of lords. That's why we're here. If you believe in Jesus. Then just de facto you are a servant of God. And if you are a servant of God, the reason you are still on earth is to make God known. That's why he hasn't taken you home yet. That's why you're not taken to heaven in an instant. Is because God has you here to make him known, to glorify him to the world, to reveal or explain how great he is, how good he is to all the people of this earth. Ultimately, I think that's what Colt McCoy understands. I do everything to glorify God. He understood the most important thing in his life is not winning a national championship. It's glorifying God. That's the most important thing. That we make God known to the world. God is the only source of salvation. The only source of hope. The only source of life. He is the one true God. The most important thing we do is to reveal that truth to the world. That's why we're here. That's what he understood. That's what I wish I would have understood back in 94. I wanted to go to Rice because I wanted to make a name for myself. I cared about my glory. I felt like Rice was more prestigious, so that's where I wanted to go. What I didn't understand is at the end of the day, my glory means nothing. My glory is meaningless. It doesn't matter whether I make a name for myself. It's not going to make it into eternity. The only thing that matters in view of eternity is the glory of God. God knew that. He understood that. He knew that I would grow as a servant better at A&M than I would at Rice. I think I know that now too. I had some friends who went to Rice. No, it wasn't always cracked up to be. Really glad I went to a and God knew. a and was a place where I would grow as his servant so that I could make him known to the world. So in his sovereignty, he shut the door on Rice and led me here. Even though it's not what I wanted, he knew that's what I needed. Wish I would have understood that back then. And that really leads us to our application this morning. Uh, when life disappoints you, When things don't work out as you had hoped, when it's painful, when it's difficult, will you choose to believe that even in the midst of your disappointments, none of them have caught God by surprise? None of them fall outside of his sovereign control and all of them will be used as part of his plan to raise you up as his servant so that you can know him and make him known. Will you choose to believe that? When life is difficult, when life is disappointing and disillusioning, will you choose to rest in the perfect foreknowledge and absolute sovereignty of God? Will you trust his plan? Will you trust that he has a good plan for you? Will you commit yourself to his purposes? If you will, then you will experience peace and joy that you can find nowhere else. Contentment in life, even when it's difficult. But it's tough to do that. So let's turn to the Lord and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you are a God with perfect foreknowledge and absolute sovereignty. Lord, we praise you that you are the one and only true God, that you are creator and maker of all things, that you are king of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that a God as great as you would freely choose to care about us. We are small, we are weak, we are sinful Lord, we are not worthy of your care and yet you freely choose to love us so much that you sent your own son to die for our sins in our place. Thank you. Thank you so much, Father, for that. And Lord, we pray that in response to your great love, that we would seek to be your servants that we would be faithful as your servants, that we would not only come to know you more deeply, but that we would dedicate our lives to making you known. Lord, I pray that you would work in us, you would work in our hearts, so that the thing that matters to us more than anything else is your glory. I pray that that wouldn't just be a, a fun thing to say, but that it would be true of us, that we would care most of all about your reputation, your fame, making you glorious and known throughout this earth. Father, grow us, make us more like your son, the perfect servant. Help us to serve you like he did. I pray that you would be with us this week. Help us to glorify him. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. You're dismissed.